This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Baglia, and here in Episode 6 of the Polar Geopolitics Podcast, I'll be talking to Professor John Holdren, who I recently met at the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik, Iceland. Holdren is currently Professor of Environmental Policy and Co-Director of the Science, Technology, and Public Policy Program at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Hearing from Professor Holdren provides a great opportunity to get an expert scientific perspective on the geophysical changes in the far north that drive much of today's geopolitical and geoeconomic interest in the Arctic. In the interview, Professor Holdren explains the impacts of climate change on the Arctic and the trans-regional effects of Arctic environmental change across the Northern Hemisphere and beyond. And drawing on his eight years of experience as science advisor to President Barack Obama and director of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, Professor Holdren shares his insights on scientific advice to political leaders and also critiques current U.S. policies on the Arctic and on climate change. Here's Professor Holdren speaking to Polar Geopolitics. It's a pleasure to be here. I think that climate change in the Arctic and the pace at which it's occurring is the most important single influence on the future of the Arctic. It's affecting everything. Climate change you can think of as the envelope within which everything else in the Arctic is going to unfold. And the climate is changing in the Arctic two to four times faster than it's changing on the average on the rest of the planet. So the Arctic is really on the cutting edge of the impacts of climate change, even though Arctic peoples have contributed very little to the accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere driving the climate change challenge. But what you're seeing in the Arctic, you're seeing an extraordinarily rapid retreat of sea ice, which is opening up certain new economic opportunities, including new transport routes, But at the same time, those economic opportunities are bringing with them big new challenges in oversight, management, regulation, and even sovereignty, where countries previously didn't care so much about who owns the bottom of the Arctic Ocean because it was all covered with ice. Now they've become much more interested in that, and we already have competing claims on the underwater territory and the mineral rights in the Arctic. Uh, We've already had an agreement among the Arctic nations to postpone fishing in the international part of Arctic waters until we understand better, number one, what fish are there, and number two, how those fish populations are, are influenced and going to be influenced by climate change. You have, in addition, the thawing of the permafrost. Uh, which is occurring all across the Arctic and which is causing severe problems for infrastructure, for buildings, for roads, for pipelines. And in addition, that thawing of the permafrost is releasing additional carbon dioxide and methane, the carbon having been stored as frozen organic carbon for all these millennia and now is available as a result of the thawing to bacterial decomposition, which is releasing that carbon either is CO2 or methane, our monitoring is not yet good enough to know exactly how big that release is all across the Arctic, but there is abundant evidence that the Arctic is increasing the overall global rate of accumulation of methane and carbon dioxide and thus is contributing to an acceleration of climate change globally. Then you have the melting ice. In Alaska alone, the glaciers are losing 75 billion tons of water per year. Greenland has been losing between 250 and 300 billion tons of water 
per year added to the ocean contributing to sea level rise. Those phenomena, the release of carbon dioxide and methane from thawing tundra and the melting of Arctic ice, are both propagating the impacts of climate change in the Arctic all around the world. Sea levels going up everywhere, and the contributions from the Arctic are an important part of that. The atmospheric concentration of both CO2 and methane is going up, and the increasing contributions to the Arctic are part of that. And in addition, the change in the temperature difference between the mid-latitudes and the Arctic that results from the Arctic warming faster than the mid-latitudes, that shrinks the temperature difference between the colder Arctic and the warmer mid-latitudes, that temperature difference drives much of the whole northern hemisphere's atmospheric circulation. And because of the change, that circulation is changing in ways that are affecting the climate in the mid-latitudes. One is seeing a weaker, wavier polar jet stream, which contains the polar vortex, And as a result of that weaker, wavier jet stream, you see more incursions of relatively cold Arctic air to the south, and you see more incursions in the other part of this oscillating set of lobes, you see more incursions of warm mid-latitude air to the north. And so you're seeing a combination, what seems an unlikely combination, of more warmth in parts of the Arctic and more cold in the winter in parts of the mid-latitudes. And all of that is the result of the impact of global climate change on the Arctic, where the changes are happening two to four times faster. You mentioned the economic or the perception of economic opportunities that are being revealed because of these uh, geophysical Mm -hmm. changes. Do you think that the economic development exploitation of the Arctic is compatible with trying to preserve it somehow? Is sustainable development even possible given these large-scale changes? First of all, I think unbridled economic development in the Arctic is not feasible And if it's attempted, it won't be sustainable. I think development in the Arctic must proceed very carefully. It should proceed not only with great respect for the environment, for the climate, but the other parts of environment as well. But it also has to proceed with respect for the indigenous peoples who have lived in the Arctic long before the rest of us were around. Uh, There was a speaker in this afternoon's panel who noted that her family has been living sustainably in the Arctic for 14,000 years. And, you know, I'm not sure of the exact number and whether one can trace any one family for that long, I doubt it. But her point in the larger sense is that the indigenous peoples have been living there for 14,000 years and their cultures and their right to an existence in the forms to which they have become attached Uh, deserve great respect as we think about what is going to happen in the Arctic. Uh, We need to be very careful that the new shipping routes in the Arctic do not end up adding significantly to Arctic pollution. If those ships were to burn heavy fuel oil, the black carbon from their smokestacks would add to the heating rate in the Arctic because black carbon is a particularly efficient absorber of sunlight. And if you drop black carbon fine soot particles from the smokestacks of ships transiting the Arctic onto the snow and ice surrounding those passages through which the ships are traversing, you will drastically increase the absorption of energy because the snow and ice reflect most of the sunlight that hits them, whereas the black particles on top of snow and ice lead to that sunlight being absorbed and the heating going into that environment. So we need to be very careful the way we think about development uh, in the Arctic. And I'm not entirely confident that that's going to happen. 
the careful thinking that's needed. But I am encouraged that the Arctic Council, the eight-nation council of the countries that have uh, territory or territorial waters in the Arctic, the Arctic Council has generated a lot of focus on the environmental dimensions of Arctic issues over its now 22 years of existence. It was established in 1996, the Arctic Council, and a large proportion of the products and the agreements that the Arctic Council has produced have been focused on the environment. So that is encouraging, that the countries that have territory there, that have territorial waters there, are becoming well aware of the environmental challenges of development in that region, and uh, it can be hoped that they will be attentive to addressing those challenges and attentive at the same time to building preparedness and resilience in the region against the changes in climate that will continue to occur there for many years to come. No matter what global society does, we will not be able to stop climate change overnight, and it will continue to happen more rapidly in the Arctic than on the rest of the planet. We understand that for very fundamental scientific reasons. And so it's very important that investment in the Arctic be done in a way that not only minimizes further impact, but that also builds in to whatever infrastructure is built there resilience against the changes in climate that we won't be able to stop. You've, uh, you've worked with policy advice at the very highest level of government in the United States. Can you perhaps say a few words how that works? How does a scientist like you communicate to decision makers? And how receptive are they generally? And what advice would you give at this point for climate change in general and the Arctic in particular? Well, first of all, I, I would say that the receptivity of political leaders to input from scientists is variable. It varies with the political leader. I had the good fortune to be the chief science advisor to President Obama for eight years. And President Obama was extremely receptive to advice and insights from science and technology. He understood how and why science and technology matter to the economy, to the environment, to national security, to energy, to the oceans. And he was always looking for ways to craft initiatives that would harness science and technology more effectively to national and global purposes. And so it was very exciting to work for a president who was both well-informed and uh, determined to use insights from science and technology to the country's advantage and to the world's advantage. I'm sorry to say that the current president of the United States does not have the same receptivity to insights from science or analysis more generally. There are still many good people working in the U.S. government on issues related to science and technology and their application to human well-being. We still have a great director of the National Institutes of Health in Dr. Francis Collins. We still have a great director of the National Science Foundation in Dr. Franz Cordova. And so at their level, there's lots of receptivity and there's lots of interest and there's lots of engagement. But it's unfortunate that we've lost it in the United States at the very top. At the same time, my sense is that in the rest of the Arctic nations, as well as most of the other nations that have strong interests in the Arctic and the opportunities there, nations like China, Japan, the nations of Western Europe, South Korea, in all of those countries, and I visited all of them in my role as President Obama's chief science advisor, and I continue to visit them now in my role as an academic, in all of those other countries, there is interest at the top in understanding what science is telling us, in understanding what technology is offering us, 
and to bring that understanding to bear on policy. So we're in a bit of a bad spell in the United States with respect to uh, interest on these matters at the very top, but the interest persists at many other levels of government. It also persists in many state governments, in city governments. We have in the United States, in response to President Trump's announcement that the United States would withdraw from the Paris Accords, there has emerged a movement called America's Pledge. And the motto of America's Pledge is, we're still in, meaning we're still in the Paris Accords. There are 22 states, there are more than 400 cities, there are more than 1,000 businesses, there are more than 500 universities who are part of America's Pledge, determined to do everything that all of those different entities can do to reduce emissions and to build adaptation, preparedness, and resilience in the United States. So one should not become entirely preoccupied with the lack of interest at the very top of the U.S. federal government, because at other levels of government and in the private sector, the academic sector, and civil society, lots of interest continues. But for the Arctic, I think it's going to be terribly important that countries continue to collaborate on monitoring and analysis of climate change in the Arctic so that everyone will know what the changing envelope of climate is doing up there and how it needs to be taken into account in whatever is built and whatever is operated in the Arctic, whatever development activities are undertaken, need to be undertaken with full knowledge of where the climate is going and what impacts it's having. And that is going to take more monitoring, more analysis, and more cooperation across countries to get it done. Okay, Professor Holdren, thank you very much for joining us. In my pleasure. Thank you. That was Professor John Holdren speaking with Polar Geopolitics at the 2018 Arctic Circle Assembly in Iceland. Stay tuned for more interviews from the Assembly, including episodes featuring Michael Byers, Alice Rogoff, Joel Clement, and others. In an upcoming episode, we'll also hear from one of Sweden's leading climate scientists, Professor Michael Schernström, who recently returned from a major expedition to the North Pole aboard the icebreaker Odin, from which he shares his observations of environmental change currently taking place in the Arctic. Please consider subscribing to Polar Geopolitics on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Acast, and other podcast platforms. Music by Mark Vandenbosch. Voiceover, Keith Foster. Logo design by Daniel Brockman. My name's Eric Paglia in Stockholm. Thanks for tuning in to the Polar Geopolitics Podcast.